Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, my name is Jonathan Pasquale, and I'm an elder here at Resonate. And that is the last time you're going to hear me say that statement, because today is my last sermon. I am rolling off of eldership after having been an elder here at Resonate for the last seven years. Uh, and I, uh, the first service was pretty emotional. Sarah said that the tears were bearable and I could still talk. So um, uh, I, I've really been praying a lot about what message I'd share with you this morning, this last sermon. And I, uh, I do want to share about my personal journey and some context around why I'm um, rolling off of eldership. Uh, but I also realized that this time has always been reserved for digging into the word. We are word-centered here at Resonate, and so I do also want to just look at a text and to talk about what is the Lord teaching us through it. And the text that we're going to look at today, uh, it's John 21. Uh, it's something I've been chewing on the last few weeks and really have... Um, have been taught a lot by the Lord, and so I just want to share some of that this morning, um, and then afterwards I'll share some around my personal story and kind of this um, journey uh, to transition out of eldership. And before I get into all that, let me pray. Lord, you are good. We praise you and glorify you. We thank you for opportunities we get to gather together freely to gather as the church, the bride of Christ, and to worship, to sing songs of praise, to open up the Bible and see what you have as messages for us corporately and individually. And I pray, God, that today you speak through me. Use my words to speak truth. Anything that is not of you, prevent me from saying it, Lord. And I pray, God, that you are glorified in this time that we will share together. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so uh, campfires are my love language. Uh, I really love a good fire, and uh, it's something that I really get a kick out of the challenge of starting the fire. There's a few more. Getting it going, and sometimes I, I try to challenge myself, okay, one match and that's it. Um, and then I use a few more and it's fine. Uh, but it, it's something where we have a, a fire pit outside of our house, and uh, I guess we're still in, in COVID, and we've used it so much, and it is no longer the COVID fireplace. Uh, I guess we're still in, in COVID. But um, it has been so much fun to just gather around there. There's something about um, all the things around a fire, like the smells that come off. I actually like the smell of the smoke that lingers in my clothes afterwards. And uh, you can just stare into the flames and look at all the colors dance around, and there's like the pops and the crackles. And then the setting of a fire is one that people gather around, and it's something that connects people, right? Like we all know this. It, it's something where you're like, huh, I want to sing some songs. In the 30s and 40s was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Delano, not Delano. Delano Roosevelt. <laughs> and, uh, and he gave a series of national radio addresses, and they were called Fireside Chats. You guys know this? Maybe. Um, and, and FDR, as he gave these chats, it was presented as um, a, a fireside chat with friends. And they actually talked about it like that in the media. It gave that name, Fireside Chats. Uh, and it was this idea that it was an intimate conversation the president was having with a few of his friends. And so people would gather together in their homes, around radios, at night, uh, sometimes next to a fire, and they just kind of picture the president sitting next to them and talking to them like friends. Uh, and, and he'd be covering these hard-hitting topics 
during his presidency, there was a banking crisis, um, there was economic recession, there was unemployment, and he even had to talk the nation through World War II as the nation got into it. Um, really hard-hitting stuff, but something about the setting of a fireside chat, I think, made it to where people received it uh, maybe a, a little easier or with more grace or, or more personal um, connection because they can picture themselves sitting next to a fire with the president. In, in personal experience, there was this time a few months ago, uh, we had a picture of it where we had a fire at our house. Um, and, uh, and around this fire, you may recognize there's Anna, who's sitting right up here, um, Liz Perry and Corin Jones, they were there too. And we had this night where uh, after dinner, we just went out there and went around the fire. I made it, took more than one match. And then uh, as we were sitting around the fire, we ate s'mores and we told stories. We had some poetry reading and some short story reading. There was some like Shel Silverstein and some Sylvia Plath, I think, and some original poetry from a couple of people around the circle. And it was just a sweet, sweet time that's like seared in my memory, this, this fireside time with friends. It had that, that ability um, to, to bring people around and connect them around a fire. So I, I think it's fitting today the text that I chose for us to look at together has a setting of a fire. And it's, it's a time when it, around a fire, a serious conversation takes place between Jesus and one of his disciples. And I think the story is one that we can see ourselves in the story. It doesn't always happen in scripture, but I think this one really lends it to, to being able to picture yourself in the story. And I think not just because we know what it's like to sit around a fire and to warm ourselves and, and what all the sights and sounds um, are like, but I think we also can picture ourselves in the story because like Peter, who's the disciple featured in the story, we know what it's like to be an imperfect follower of Christ who just every now and then needs a reminder of the Lord's unconditional love for us and a reminder of, of our identity and life purpose in him. So the chapter we're going to look at, John 21, uh, it comes at the end of John's gospel, the book of John. And it's, it's an epilogue of sorts. And it is that because if you look at, at chapter, the end of chapter 20, if you look at your Bible and you kind of look just right before chapter 21 starts, it has a concluding paragraph. It's like, here, we're wrapping up the story of Jesus. And he was like this. And it's like you could put the end there and not have anything else. But chapter 21 comes along with this really vivid story. And so it's already set apart as this extra thing, this special thing that, that captures your attention. You're like, oh, why did they put this? I should pay attention to this story. And even more so, I think it has this really special placement because it's the last story we get after four gospel books about Jesus' life. So it's like this, this end cap, this curtain call that you're like, oh, it's really special. I should really pay attention to it. And so we've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you, you know, read through the canonical order of the gospels. And this is the story we're left with. And it goes like this. That Jesus had already revealed himself to the disciples, and he revealed him to, him to, themself, to them one more time at the Sea of Tiberias. And the disciples together at the time were Simon Peter and Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, and Thomas, who was called the twin, and then the sons of Deb Zebedee, and, and two other disciples, or seven of them in all. And Simon Peter said, hey, I'm going fishing. And the other disciple said, we'll go with you. 
And so they went and they got in a boat and they fished all night and didn't catch anything. And as day was breaking, Jesus came along at the shore, but the disciples didn't recognize that it was him. And he called out to them. He said, children, you got any fish? And then they replied, no. (laughs) And then Jesus said, okay, cast the net on the right side of the boat. And they did. And they got so many fish, they could not haul the net in. And then at that point, the disciple whom Jesus loved turned to Peter and he goes, it's the Lord. And then Peter put on his outer coat because he had been stripped down for work and he threw himself into the water. The other disciples took the boat and they hauled the net ashore. And when they got to the shore, they saw a charcoal fire. And on it was laid some fish and some bread. And Jesus said to them, hey, bring some of the fish that you caught. So Peter went to the boat and he grabbed the net full of fish. And the net was filled with huge fish, 153 of them. And even though it was filled with so much fish, it did not break. And Jesus said, come and have breakfast. And so Jesus took the bread and gave it to him. He did the same with the fish. None of them, none of the disciples dared to ask Jesus, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And this was the third time that Jesus had revealed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And after they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. The second time, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. The third time, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And at this, Peter was dismayed because the Lord asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. He continued, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you will stretch out your arms and someone else is going to dress you and carry you to where you don't want to go. And he said this to indicate the kind of death that Peter would die to glorify God. And after he'd said that to Peter, he said, follow me. I love this story. It's so interesting to study. And and it's packed full of connections to previous stories throughout the gospel. And it's got great lessons for us. Um, reminders of who Jesus is. That's why I chose it to discuss today. And I want to focus on these three things, um, three different areas to guide our discussion. And uh, they are alliterated and rhymed for your convenience. I had to do that. It's my last sermon, of course. And so here, here are the three areas. We see in this story a repetition of the disciples' call, 
You have the reputation of the Lord of all, all right, his character talked about, and then the restoration after a sinful fall, all right? That's where we're going today, talking about those things, repetition, reputation, restoration. Okay, the repetition of a disciple's call is seen that's put before us as a callback to the original calling of the disciples, okay? At the beginning of the Gospels, each one of the books uh, of the Gospels has some version of the disciples' call, and you have a similar scene. You have the same cast of characters. Peter, his brother Andrew, was also a fisherman with him. You have James and John. Peter and James and John are in this group of seven disciples that are featured at the end of John. Okay, so same people. You have the exact same lake. This is the Sea of Tiberias, it calls it in John. This is the same as the Lake of Gennesaret, same as the, the Sea of Galilee, the same, different names for the same lake. And so, exact same place. And then you have the exact same circumstances. You have the disciples who are fishermen going out, fishing all night, trying to, not catching anything. And then the stranger shows up, this guy unknown to them, who tells them how to cast their net. And then there's a miraculous catch of fish. All right? So, all of those show there's this connection between this last story in the Gospels, and then the first calling of the disciples that was at the beginning of the Gospels. We're supposed to see that connection. And then in this version, or this calling of the disciples, Jesus says the phrase, follow me. And it's an exact repetition of how he had called the disciples originally. So he's saying, he said originally, follow me. And he's saying now at the end of his, his ministry and time on earth, follow me again. Same call. And so I think that one of the major purposes of the scene is to um, show that, that to follow Jesus, when he says, follow me, it has these different aspects to it. It's not just the same every time. And, and those different aspects, the, one, there's this initial response to when Jesus calls. And it's, when he says, follow me, it's this invitation to get to know him, to learn from him, to walk with him, to become familiar and intimate in relationship with him. We saw this throughout the Gospels, and, and uh, we see where he loves his friends, he's gentle with them, he heals people, people learn at his feet, okay? So that's one way of following him. And then at the end of his ministry, before he ascends, he says, follow me. Now, they're not going to walk with him physically for a few more years, no. So it's going to look different. How? And this follow me is more, okay, I'm sending you out to go. You're going to go out and love and minister. You're going to follow through in obedience. Right after this is the Great Commission, where he says, go, therefore, and make disciples. So these two aspects of following Christ. There's a following that is being discipled, and then there's a following that is making disciples. You see that? And, and it is something that we follow that model as well, where these different aspects of following Christ they happen in tandem with each other. They're not mutually exclusive. You can't actually have just one side without the other. You can't just say, all right, I'm gonna get to know Christ, I'm gonna learn all about him, I'm gonna go to Bible studies, I'm gonna come to Sunday services, and then never share. Never share the good news, never minister in the name of Christ, never love in action, never make disciples. And then on the opposite side, you, you can't just say, I'm on mission and ministry for Jesus, and I'm all out, I'm always working hard in his name, but then never abiding in the vine never sitting at his feet and just getting to know him, spending time in his presence. You have to have both. I think his story is showing us those two things. I think no matter where you are in your faith journey, 
whether you haven't yet believed or maybe you've been following him for decades, Jesus is extending the same invitation to you. He's saying, follow me. And you have to figure out, okay, how am I going to do that? How am I going to respond? And it's an invitation that is not just one time. It is every day. Jesus said it in Luke 9, 23. He said, if anyone will come after me, must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. All right? There's that follow me that is, has this daily aspect to it. It's a constant invitation to follow Christ. So this story shows Jesus repeating that call, follow me, follow me, follow me to learn and grow and see and abide, follow me to go, therefore, and make disciples. All right, so you have that uh, repetition of a disciple's call. Now you have the reputation of the Lord of all. This is the encore final story of Jesus, and uh, it, it, in a way, it's a scene that provides us with a lasting impression of who he is. So we're reminded of the key aspects of Jesus' character. And uh, so what do we see here about Jesus? We see three things, also alliterated. We see his presence, his power, and his provision. I think this final story about Jesus is, is saying, remember, these are the important aspects that you just have to be seared in your memory about who Jesus is, okay? His presence, his power, his provision. His presence, if you think about it, you know, his disciples, they're not expecting him, but in a way, they really need him. They just don't know it. Isn't it like that for us? Jesus is there, always, but we're not always looking for him. And when Peter finds out that, that the Lord is the guy on the beach, he does this crazy comical thing and throws himself into the water. I actually think that Peter can't really swim too well. Like if you think about when he was, he was walking on the water, when Jesus called him out during the storm and he was walking on the water, when he started losing faith and started sinking, he didn't just like swim back to the boat. He's like, Jesus, save me. Like, I think he can't actually really swim. And then so in this time when he sees Jesus and knows that it's him on the shore, he's not waiting the few minutes for them to get situated with the boat and row a hundred yards. He's like, I got to go now. And he stops at nothing to get in the presence of Jesus. He's like, I got to do that now. And contrast that with the first time that Peter had experienced the miraculous catch of fish and experienced Jesus' presence, all right? In that story, in Luke 5, it says, when Peter saw it, the miraculous catch of fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. So he's saying, go away or take me away. I don't want to be in the presence of the Lord. Isn't that, it's the opposite. Really interesting. The same miracle happened. He had a different kind of response to Jesus' presence. I think this shows us there's a shift that happens after we walk with Jesus and get to really know what he's all about. That at first his presence is overwhelming, it's convicting, but all we can focus on is our sin and our brokenness. And we convince ourselves, ah, that can't even be in the presence of Jesus. It, It doesn't make any sense for us to belong in his presence. We don't feel worthy or deserving of his love or forgiveness. Like that's that initial response to Jesus' presence. But then we get to know him better. And we read about him in the word. We, we walk by the spirit and we experience life under the authority of Christ. And we realize his love is 
unconditional. Rather than pushing him away because we're sinful, we come to crave his presence because we're sinful. Because we learn that in his presence is peace and freedom and forgiveness. I think that's part of why Peter stopped at nothing to rush to Jesus' side, to be in his presence. He knew he was familiar with what the real presence of Jesus is all about. Okay, so we have uh, Jesus' presence and then his power talked about in this story. He showed his power over nature with this repeated miracle of the miraculous catch of fish. We're reminded in a practical demonstration, the same truth that was told at the beginning of John's gospel, the same book where it says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Okay, so through him, all things were made. That's Jesus, God, the son. In this story, Jesus reminds us that he is the word. He is the one who's always been there through whom all creation was made. He has power and authority over all of it, this tangible world. And so he has power over our bodies and our health. He has power over the natural world that we see and we touch. We forget that all too easily. We forget to thank him for it. And we forget to thank Jesus or to ask him to show his power through intervening in that physical world when there is times of need. Now this story helps us remember just how much power and authority Jesus Christ has over all of creation. Okay, so we're shown his presence, his power, and his provision. In this final story, the Gospels were reminded the Lord loves to provide for his children. He turned water into wine at a wedding. And then here, there's a, there's a boatload of hungry fishermen, and he chooses to provide for them a miraculous catch and to provide for them brunch around a fire, some yummy fish and bread. I'd like to taste what that was like. But in real, tangible ways, Jesus satisfies and provides for their needs. We're shown that in a really real way in this beautiful story. Do we recognize the same thing in our lives? That any provision, any blessing, any good and perfect gift is from above, from Christ, who, through whom all things were created. You know, it's kind of a, a joke sometimes to exclaim, thank you, Jesus. But it's true. I think it's okay to say that. I think it's okay to thank Jesus for whatever we've been provided with. And I think it's okay to ask him when we're lacking, to ask for his interven intervention, that he would provide. We can ask him for food on the table and for water for our gardens and for a job when we're lacking it. He can, he has control. So this story shows Jesus taking pleasure in providing. He gave the disciples more fish than they needed. They could sell it off and make money. When they got to the shore, he was providing the meal for them. This story shows us a reminder of Jesus as provider and then us as receivers of his blessings, of his provision in real tangible ways. All right, so we had Jesus' presence, his power, his provision. 
In the story overall, we are seeing the repetition of the disciples' call, the reputation of the Lord of all in those different ways, and then restoration from a sinful fall. And uh, the restoration we're talking about is with the disciple Peter. He had a sinful fall in denying Jesus three times before Jesus was crucified, before he went to the cross. Um, If you're unfamiliar with that story, uh, just real quick, you know, Jesus was going to the cross, and, uh, and the, the disciples were probably really afraid in that time because Jesus is about to be murdered, prosecuted, and persecuted for who he claimed to be. And then Peter found himself posed with a question, aren't you, aren't you one of his followers? And before this, Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And then he's asked, aren't you one of his followers? Don't you know him? And he denied three times. And then the rooster crowed. So it happened exactly how Jesus had predicted. And that scene, this is the real cool nugget, that scene that Peter denied Jesus at, there is in the story a charcoal fire. And it actually is the only other time in the entire New Testament where charcoal fire is mentioned. Like, it's this tiny little nugget where we're like, oh, that the only other place where I see that is in this story. So the two times are Peter's denial of Jesus and then Peter's affirmation by Jesus around his fire, the fireside chat scene. We're meant to connect the two. And so you can picture G, uh, Peter, you know, in this time at the end of John, uh, and he's soaking wet from having thrown himself in the sea, and he's warming himself by the fire. And as he's warming himself, he's looking, he's, he's smelling those smells of the charcoal fire. He's, he's hearing the pops and crackles and looking into the flames, and maybe he's thinking in the back of his mind, like, ah, oh, man, when was the last time I was warming myself by charcoal fire? Oh, yeah, it was, it was that time, that night that Jesus was crucified. And in that moment, Jesus speaks up, and asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter's warming himself, and he's like, yeah, you know I love you, Lord. And Jesus asks him the second time. And then by the third time, Peter kind of connects the dots. He's like, oh, Jesus isn't hard of hearing. He's trying to teach me something like he always does when he asks questions. And that's why he's dismayed at that third time, because he made that connection. He's like, oh, The last time someone asked me questions by charcoal fire, I denied Christ. And then this time he did. He affirmed his love for Christ, but Jesus gave him additional directives, saying, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. But he's giving Peter that opportunity with the same mouth that he had used to deny Christ. He's giving Peter the opportunity to affirm his love He's given the opportunity to repent, to turn from having fallen, and to be brought back into the fold and to, to glorify Christ with his life. Isn't this the same opportunity that he gives to us? And no matter how many times we fall, and we will fall, we will fail because we are still in the flesh and we're human and we are sinful. But no matter how many times we fall, Jesus gently comes to us, gives us the opportunity to confess our sin, because Jesus wanted that. He wanted Peter to acknowledge his sin, 
to acknowledge what he had done and to repent, to turn from it. He gives us that opportunity. He wants us to confess, to repent from our sin and to be used by him for his glory. He forgives and doesn't hold grudges, but he does want us to acknowledge our fall. And stepping back and, and kind of remembering the, the, the story's strategic placement at the end of the Gospels, this is the wrap-up of a four-book presentation of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the man who is God and to whom we would dare submit our lives. And the image we are purposefully left with is one where Jesus lovingly forgives and restores. Like, that's the picture of Jesus we're supposed to be left with. He forgives, he loves, he restores. And if the dude who denied Jesus on the night he was crucified and said, no, I don't know him, if he isn't beyond forgiveness and restoration, maybe there's hope for me. Maybe there's hope for you. Like, you may think that you are the worst sinner, and that you don't deserve forgiveness, or you don't deserve Jesus' love. But... He knows your weakness. He knows mine. He knows that we're weak and fallible. And still, he wants us to follow him. He wants us to acknowledge. He wants us to acknowledge that we're broken and that we mess up. We're a bunch of misfits. All of us, we're imperfect. We're in process. We're in need of a savior. And that's what makes the Christian church beautiful and unique in this world. Hopefully you made some sense of uh, all those observations in this story in John 21. Um, again, this is kind of backdrop to uh, me sharing about how I'm not going to be an elder anymore, but, but this is what I've been chewing on. Um, so I do want to share a little bit about why I'm rolling off of, uh, of eldership. To start off, uh, Sarah and I, we are not going anywhere. <laughs> We're still partners here at Resonate. We're still going to be a part of this fellowship. Uh, I haven't been exposed as a fraud and stripped of my title or anything like that. Um, this is actually a voluntarily, voluntary stepping down. And um, what it comes down to is I had my own fireside chat with Jesus. Yeah, I've been an elder now at Resonate for seven and a half years. Some of you, it might be your first time here. <laughs> you only know me since we've been in this building, but uh, I, I became an elder not too long after we started the church and, uh, and we planted the church. And, and Chris was the original only elder, and then, um, and then soon after, I came alongside. And uh, most of you also know that Sarah and I individually served as missionaries. Um, internationally, and that we did that um, before we were married, and then we did it as we were married. And we always thought that at some point we'd take our, our four kids and, and leave America and then go again to the mission field and serve, most likely in the 1040 window, maybe in North Africa or the Middle East, an Arabic-speaking country since Sarah speaks some Arabic. That's what we thought. That was always the plan. And so a few years ago, we uh, thought that it was time to start praying about really following through with that. And we pursued it pretty seriously um, to the point where we were in early candidate process with a couple of missions agencies. And over the course of several months, through a lot of prayer and um, through a lot of consideration and um, confirmation, we actually concluded the Lord was telling us no, that, that it wasn't time, that we weren't supposed to 
drop everything and take our family overseas. And I think I'm gonna be honest, uh, it was a blow to me. It was something that, um, that we as a family and that I individually, I had to grieve uh, because I always had this idea in my head of how it was supposed to be, and then that was upended. I always assumed sooner or later we'd be overseas missionaries again. And so in the months that followed, Jesus had this fireside chat with me, and it was like he was telling me, like he's asking me these questions, and he's saying, Jonathan, son of Alex, do you love me? <laughs> and I had this opportunity where my immediate response was, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I was going to take my family to the other side of the world and be missionaries for you. Yeah, I love you. And then gently, he just asked the question again, Jonathan, do you love me? And, and my immediate response is, yes, you know I do. I was going to obey. I had the plan all along. And then he kept asking me, and then I got it, like Peter did. I'm like, oh, no, I... I I was holding out. I had my view of what my life was supposed to look like, what ministry and mission was supposed to look like. And I was holding this area of my life and not putting it under your authority, Lord. He was showing me that I had put up some walls. I had always thought that there were these two parallel tracks and one side was church, ministry, mission, um, that, that it was stuff like being an elder and being a missionary. And then there was this other side that it was my job. It was the workplace. It was taproom coffee, my coffee shop that I started. It was business and entrepreneurship and consulting. And I always said, God, this, this side is temporary, it's short term. And at one point, I'm going to throw it all away so that I can go be a missionary for you. And Jesus was showing me, you were looking at it the wrong way. And what he showed me was that these two parallel tracks were actually one in this crazy, amazing, awesome way. And it was that as the plan all along, and I just didn't know it. I didn't realize it. I didn't open my eyes to that truth. And so I had a professional identity crisis of sorts. <laughs> Uh, it took me a while to straighten it out and to get some clarity and wisdom um, with how to move forward. And uh, through God's sovereignty and some really timely meetings with um, certain people, I, I met some people involved in what is dubbed the business as mission movement globally. And some of you have heard me talk about this in sermons before. Um, I, I don't have time to really get into it about what that term means and what the community is all about. Catch me after the service and ask me some follow-up questions. Um, but I, I really started uh, finding out about this movement, and the long and short of it is um, that, that as I figured out that these two parallel tracks were one, I started asking and then finding where my place was in that movement, and it was really specific, and I didn't realize it. God was crafting, Christ was crafting my story very purposefully every step of the way so that I'd be used in this specific position for his glory, and that ended up being in this space of coaching and consulting others as they would use business as mission for God's glory locally and internationally. I joined a business's mission coaching group, became one of their coaches and subject matter experts, and started equipping missionaries who were using coffee in other countries, in unreached nations. And it wasn't just a platform to get a visa. In and through the business, they were ministering for the Lord. And as I coached others in it, 
I was convicted that while I was applying some principles at Taproom, my coffee shop, uh, that the Lord was leading me to actually maybe start something fresh from the ground up and to bake in all of this methodology, this faith and work, theology of work, so that everything I was doing professionally was also ministry. So that's what I'm doing. I'm starting a new company. It's called Opo Coffee. And you may recognize there are some stickers on the coffee out there, and it says Opo, O-P-O. That's our company. We've already started it. We're launching in Decatur um, in, in November. Opo is going to be a, a coffee roastery and retail coffee bar, and we're going to have this coffee training center where we're actually going to meld some of the business as mission coaching and consulting with specialty coffee industry certification and training so that we want to be, like I have this personal vision that I think is from the Lord where I'm going to glorify him in my role as founder and CEO of this company, and the company has this very specific uh, goal where we're going to be a go-to resource for people using coffee in ministry and mission contexts around the world. And we've already started doing that. We're equipping people in Indonesia, working with unreached people group in Papua, equipping people in Eastern Europe, starting retail coffee shops. It's already begun. The elevator pitch is that OPPO has a stated mission of, of using specialty coffee to make a positive impact in people's lives throughout the world, and, and we're founded on Christian principles, but we aren't necessarily a Christian coffee business. Um, but all of this, it's not just a huge dream, it's a, it's a felt calling, and it's gonna take a lot of my time and energy and effort, and that's why I am stepping down from position as elder at Resonate. But it's still ministry. I'm still pastoring a community. It's just not going to be necessarily as an elder at Resonate, and I'll still be a part of the fellowship here, but I'll be ministering in and through my work, and I'd love to talk with you over a cup of coffee about what actually that means and how it looks day to day. Um, But as we wrap up here, I know I've gotten long, I want to ask, um, what are you hearing in your fireside chat with Jesus? It's going to be different for each one of us. What are you hearing? What are you hearing him say? And what do you need to say in response in order to make things right? I challenge you to really reflect on that. What's your fireside chat with Jesus? And maybe journal about it. Maybe pray about it. Do that today or this week. I also want you to think about what is your response to Jesus saying, follow me? Because he's saying it to each one of us. He's saying at the beginning of the journey or before we even decide that we're going to follow Jesus, he's saying, follow me. And after a seasoned life of walking, being a disciple of Christ, he's still saying, follow me. What is your response to that? What is he asking you to do in response to follow me? Maybe today it's just to go in one of those rooms and ask someone to pray for you, to pray with you as you're wrestling with faith questions. Maybe the follow me means that, that you have to actually submit your work to him under the authority of Christ because you've never done that before. You've never said, Jesus, you're Lord of my work too. What is it that you need to respond to Jesus with when he's asking you, follow me? Now for Peter and the disciples, um, Christ changed everything about their lives. 
you know, after Jesus ascended, the first church, okay, the only group of believers in the entire world, had about the same number as Resonate does. That together, we are about the size of what the first church was. And think about it. Like, they were, they were uh, fishermen, and they were doctors or, or tax collectors. They were uneducated. They were families. And, and a few of them went, and, and they were traveling missionaries or church leaders. The vast majority of them just went back to their homes and their hometowns and their little fellowships and lived life every day as followers of Christ. And that church that numbered just like we do turned the world upside down. The same is possible. I would pray and hope the same is possible for us, that with this fellowship of believers committed to the Lord, submitted to him in all things, we can turn the world upside down. If there's anything that I want you to hear and walk away with, with this being my last sermon, it's this. It's that it's worth it. He's worth it. Jesus Christ is worth your all. Every part of your life, your being, your work, your family, your relationships, he's worth it all. I want to challenge you to put your faith in him. Not just as a walk down the aisle and say, now I'm a Christian but to put your faith and trust in him in every part of your life. I want you to ask yourself, is this particular area of my life submitted to the authority of Christ? And if it's not, submit it to him. Test him in it. Go to him and his presence. And I I know, I promise, you're going to realize that there at his side, that's where there's peace. That's where there's meaning. That's where there's hope. That's where there's joy. The world does not have the answers. Christ has the answers. I challenge you in that. Whatever problem you are facing, he's got the answer. He is powerful. He provides. He wants you to come into his presence and just sit and be free. He's worth it all. Heed his call to follow him. We're going to transition to a time of communion where we're going to remind ourselves of the centrality of Christ. And we've already been talking about it all this morning. But through this sacrament, we declare it together. And I always love thinking about how around this time, around the world, there are believers gathering together in churches or in homes or in secret And they are taking part in the Last Supper (laughs) or in communion, celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And they're taking some form of bread, some form of the cup, and we join together with that global church community. Millions of people, but one in Christ. I always love that visual of those pockets of believers all over the world doing the exact same thing this morning. And so we give thanks to God the Father that our Savior Jesus Christ, before he suffered, gave us this memorial as his sacrifice until he comes again. And at his last supper, the Lord Jesus took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Therefore, we proclaim our faith as signed and sealed in this sacrament. And let's say it together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let us pray. Lord, our God, send your Holy Spirit so that this bread and cup may be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all your saints be united with Christ and remain faithful in hope and love. Gather your whole church, O Lord, into the glory of your kingdom. We pray together in the name of Christ, who taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.